If you guys will stand with me, uh, we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 11, and I'm going to read this all the way down to the end of the chapter. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord, or if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You guys can take a seat. So we're going to continue on here in James chapter 4. Uh, that's where we've been hanging out um, for the last week or so. And uh, I'm wondering, as we begin, did anybody go to the air show this past week here in Atlantic City? Raise your hand. Right, or at least see kind of the planes going over. Uh, you can't help but seeing them kind of fly all over. They were practicing, I think, on the day before. And I was in my office, and the church building was rattling, you know, as the uh, Blue Angels go by and the F-22 uh, my son, he loved the F-22, but he hated the, the uh, sound, and so he, he kind of liked what it was doing, but didn't like the sound at all. He was covering his ears, you know, at the air show. Well, as I was looking at the air show, I, I was pretty interested in it, and uh, I was looking uh, at the news, uh, trying to see some things kind of before it happened, and one of the articles I came by um, was first on the press of Atlantic City, but then it kind of went to another one on CNN, and there was an army skydiver that was supposed to be here at the show in Atlantic City. Uh, but he was doing a show, I think it was in Chicago. Yep, the Chicago Air and Water Show. He, he did this show a week before he was supposed to be here. Well, his team ended up canceling their show here in Atlantic City uh, because one of the uh, people on the team passed away. And I want to read to you uh, something that the article said. It said, a member of the Army Golden Knights parachute team died Sunday after being injured during a performance at the Chicago Air and Water Show, authorities said. Sergeant First Class Corey Hood, 32 of Cincinnati, Ohio, was hurt Saturday when he collided in midair with a member of the Navy Leapfrog team when they were doing a certain maneuver. Hood, who had survived five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, died Sunday afternoon at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. You know, as I read that, I started thinking about the passage that we just read, about the shortness of life, the brevity of life. This guy who was uh, actually survived something that no one thought that he would survive, five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan in a war zone, he comes back to go to an air show and to help out with an air show, doing his performance, thinking that he would survive that, that he would be blessed with tomorrow probably. He probably didn't go up there presuming that something was going to go wrong and that he was going to die. And so the thing that, you know, most likely he would have died by going over to the battlefield, he actually survived. 
And the thing that everybody thought he, that he would survive, he actually didn't. And I share this story because I think we need to start this sermon with just a, the understanding that life is short. Life is short, and we know the phrase that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We hear about that, we read about that, but sometimes it doesn't really hit home until it happens close around us, or an accident happens, or something happens with our health, and we realize how short our one life is. Well, today we're going to talk about the brevity of life and how that really affects the way that we view our lives and the way that we live our lives. And so I think today James is going to show us kind of one overarching idea, and it is this, that true Christian faith is shown by our love for one another and also by the way that we view our lives. And so by our love for one another, how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, but then also how do we view and live our lives on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to look at those two things. And first, James opens up with this first negative command, don't speak evil against one another. So let's turn to verse 11. James, he gives us just a simple, powerful command. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And you'll remember that back in chapter 3, of James, as we were there, I think it was Pastor Santo that was speaking on this. He was talking about the power of the tongue. He was talking about how the power of the tongue has capacity to do great good, but also how it can do great evil, right? Out of the same tongue we looked at in our preparation for worship, we bless God, but then we also curse others. Well, we see that the tongue has a great potential. Great power. But there's a warning here for us, James says. And one commentator, he points out two important things here. He says, first, that this, this phrase, speak evil against, refers to any form of speaking against another person. Any form, right? And we'll talk about some of those here in a minute. But he also says the way that James talks about this and the word that he uses indicates that it was already going on among the people that he was preaching to, that he was speaking to here. And so it's a problem that was already existing inside of that church, just like it's already existing in our church. And he's speaking to them, saying any form of evil speech against one another is wrong. So James gives this simple negative commands that covers a whole lot of ground as far as the way that we interact. Any form of bad or malicious or evil talk towards one another is wrong, the scripture says. And this is talking about Christian brothers and sisters. This is not talking about how we relate to the outside world. This is not talking about how the world relates to each other, but it's actually talking about us. How do we relate to each other? How do we speak to one another? How do we use that power of the tongue? So this could be kind of right in their face, right? This could be me getting mad at Jason and saying something ugly to him. Or it could be something that, sharing something that was a confidential piece of information that I had a conversation with Dave and I shared that with one of you guys. Or it could be me talking behind one of your backs. These are all different forms of evil speech against one another that's going on here. So any number of ways that we can talk about speaking evil against each other, that's what's going on here. And God says that shouldn't be among us. That shouldn't be the way that we relate to one another. If if we have been saved by Jesus Christ, if we have been washed in his blood, 
and changed and transformed by him, then I shouldn't be relating to my brother or to my sister like that. I shouldn't be speaking in those ways. That's hateful. In verse 11, the last part of it, James, he gives us the reason for this command. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And so James, he gives us a reason for this command. He doesn't just kind of say the command and move on, but he says, I'll give you a reason why. It's kind of like my son right now, Caleb. Now he's in that stage where he's asking why about everything. Every single thing. Why, Dad? Why? And, I, and you just kind of want to sit there and say, because. It's just because. That's the way I said it. That's why it is. And, and we'll explain it later, you know? And uh, he just asks why incessantly about everything. That's the first word that comes out of his mouth. Why? Well, it's almost as if James anticipated this with us as we were reading this passage. Why, James? Well, he's okay. I'll give you an answer. I will give you a reason. And so he points out to us that when we speak evil against our brothers and our sisters, it's it's the same as if we were judging them in a wrong way. Listen to this quote. It says, In judging people, what we really want to take is God's place. The one who judges another person is presuming to have authority to set the law or standard by which the other person is judged. Judging is an attempt to be in control as God is in control. And so really what it's trying to do there, when we do that, it's like we're trying to take God's place. And so we're trying to step above God and to say we can judge perfectly. Now, I don't think what's going on here with our brother James is, is um, kind of a right way of judging or a right way of making a distinction or an evaluation The scriptures talk about that a lot. For example, judging a person by their fruit, right? If if someone says that they're a believer, they should be showing certain fruit, right, in their lives. Now, they're not going to do it perfectly, but it should be reflecting in their lives that they generally love people. They generally want to serve others and, and this kind of thing. And we know we all struggle with sin. We don't do that always. But there should be a general sense in our life, the fruit of our life should be that we follow God. And it should show in our lives. And so what I don't think he's is he's talking about any form of judgment or any form of making an evaluation. But what he's talking about is more of a negative, condescending, I'm better than you, hateful judgment against your brother or sister. And that's what he means when he says, if I speak evil against my brother or sister. And if we do that, what we're actually saying is that God's law doesn't matter, right? It's in, in this sense, we're speaking against God's law. Because God has said one thing, and yet we're saying another thing. So we're saying what we're saying is more important than what God says. And that way, we're becoming a judge. Don't worry about what God said. Here's what I said. And that's wrong. We know that. We are judging God's law to be insignificant or outdated or wrong. We are saying, God, you know what? That may be your way, but you know what? I want to speak evil against my brother or sister. And I think that's right. I think that's okay. They did something against me, and so therefore I can go up and get in their face and say something wrong. Say something hateful to them. That's okay. What did you do there? You made up your own rule. You made up your own law in place of God's law. In that sense, that's what James is talking about. And this is how we can understand James's biting rebuke here to us. In verse 12, James goes on to give a kind of a correction, a rebuke to us who break 
God's law. He says there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so he tells us here, look, there's only one lawgiver, only one judge. That's it. And he's telling us here also in the same sense that it's not you and it's not me. So if there is only one, one lawgiver, one judge, that means it cannot be us. It is God, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And James, he just keeps going. He nails it into the the last nail, into the coffin, as it were, by a somewhat kind of sarcastic question, asking us, who are you to judge your neighbor? He's basically saying to us, you're not him, the lawgiver and the judge. And so why are you acting like him? Why are you acting like him if you're not him? Let's talk about maybe some application of this. I know, he's, I know James is tough here. James is convicting us, and sometimes we need that. But we need to realize that our words have great power. They have great power to do great good, to build people up, to encourage them on a hard day or through a hard circumstance or to tear down and to just cut them to pieces. Remember the saying, with much power comes great responsibility. Well, here's a question I want you guys to ask yourself today. What are the places in the church where we are guilty of speaking evil against one another? Where are the places, as one commentator put uh, this way, or sorry, talked about this, where are the places that we gossip behind each other's back? Maybe it's by what we say, by what we actually say to one another that is hateful. I don't know about you, but I think about um, speech with my, my wife, and right, the, the relationships that are the closest to us, sometimes we can hurt the most with our hateful speech. Maybe you want to call them heart daggers, knowing the right words that will penetrate the deepest to hurt your spouse or to hurt your friend or family member. Those that you know that when you say that, it's going to cut to the core. You know that person well enough to say that's going to, that's going to tear them down. That's going to get them depressed. That's going to get them looking inward. That's going to get them feeling bad about themselves. It's going to make me feel good. And maybe husbands to their wives or wives to their husbands. It may be parents to their kids or kids to their parents or any other kind of relationship within the church. These heart daggers that go right to the heart and tear us apart. Maybe it's by being exaggerating or imbalanced or impartial when you're saying something or telling a story to someone else so that you build yourself up in the story and you tear somebody else down. You're recounting something that happened. I often do that even without even thinking about it. I kind of exaggerate the details of the story. It's like a bad fisherman story, which kind of always, the the size of the fish just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Or for me, that there actually was a fish when I went out fishing, you know, rather than, you know, the size of the fish. Exaggerating, being imbalanced or partial. Maybe it's by what we don't say. By by not speaking up for somebody, when we see our brother or sister um, saying something wrongly about that person. Right? When we get over here and we start talking about someone over there and we don't say anything to that person that's talking bad about that other person. Maybe it's because we don't call them out on the spot. 
Remember James 3, 5 says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. That was the passage that talked about our tongues. We let that fire kindle and blaze and get out of control because we don't cut it at the root. We don't hold each other accountable of our speech. And that happens. And I'm praying that God would search your heart and my heart this morning and really bring us to a place of repentance over our speech, of faith, going back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know what? I messed up at this. Maybe even this week in a bad way. And I need to go back and ask repentance for the person that I spoke evil to. But I also need to come back to you and ask for forgiveness and come back to the cross where I know that I am forgiven and I am helped in Jesus. And he can help me go back out and to live in a way in which my speech builds others up and loves them well. There was a, a, something that happened recently uh, with a good friend of mine back in Charlotte. And, uh, and it was one of those things that once the words came out of my mouth, I realized that I had done one of those heart daggers. And I realized, I was like, dang, I shouldn't have said that. And I knew that it just cut him apart. I, I really didn't mean for it to. I was just joking around. And, and it just kind of went, went straight to the heart. And I had to say, look, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for saying that to you. I shouldn't have said that. I wasn't thinking. I was just joking around. And I had to repent and apologize for that and ask for forgiveness. And he forgave me. And we were able to move forward and, uh, and continue our, our friendship and, and peace. And so that, that's maybe something that we need to do this morning. Well, the second thing that we look at today in our passage is the last half of the passage, the second paragraph, where James talks about not boasting in tomorrow, not boasting in the future. He says, do not boast about tomorrow. And as we turn to this command, we're going to see that James, he basically turns to the issue of the shortness of life that we started out with and learning to trust that God's got it all under control. God's got it all under control. We have to believe that. The scriptures teach that. We can't do life without believing that God has got it all under control. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us two very different opposite sayings that represent two different ways of thinking. So let's look at the first one. It's the ungodly saying, the wrong way to view life. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so commentators point out here that the group that James is addressing is is most likely Christian businessmen and women, merchants, entrepreneurs, in this group, in this uh, uh, people that James is writing to. But we're going to see how kind of the principles apply to all of us as Christians. But you see in that first statement, you see how kind of there are some assumptions going on in this guy's mind as he says this phrase. Well, one, of, one of the assumptions is this, that tomorrow is promised. Tomorrow is promised. That he believes that tomorrow is going to happen. He takes that for granted. He also takes for granted that what was will be. He believes that there's going to be a sameness, right? There's patterns that he can count on, right? And that's evidenced by kind of that jump in duration from day to year, right? And he says, it's just going to be the same as it always was. I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to get paid and I'm going to go home and do whatever I want because this is the way it always has been and this is where it always will be. He believes that tomorrow is promised, and today is promised. 
One commentator also points out this saying is godless. He says, but God has no place in these plans. You see that phrase, and God has no place in those plans. Here are my plans. I'm going to make some money. Tomorrow I'm going to go to this place, and the next day I'm going to go to this place, and I'm going to make some money and make a profit. But God is nowhere to be found. Maybe it makes you think like me of some of the movers and shakers of our own city. How they moved into our city and its markets and boasted our profit. Maybe they made extravagant plans thinking that tomorrow will always be there. And tomorrow will always hold more and more riches. We look at what happened and we know that that's not the case. That wealth and careers and their lives, just like ours, were a vapor, a mist. And it wasn't quite the promise that they thought it was going to be. It wasn't quite the profit that they thought it was going to be. They thought that tomorrow would always be here, maybe. And yet it surprised them. Verse 14 goes over James's critique. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James here says, look, you have a lack of knowledge. You don't know. You're not God. I'm not God. And James is telling us this to remind us that when we say tomorrow is promised, we are acting like who? We're acting like God. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We don't know what tomorrow will hold, let alone what um, the next few moments will hold. We're limited. We're dependent on God. We are needy. We need him. And yet we act as if we don't. The second problem James proves or shows to us is the brevity of life. That life is short. He asks the question, what is your life? And then he gives a great illustration. He says, your life is like a mist. Here at one moment, then gone the next. Have you ever took a spray bottle and sprayed it and watched that mist just kind of dissipate into the air real quick? It's there and then it's gone, right? Maybe think about going into the grocery store and, uh, you know, that mist that comes down on the uh, vegetables and the fruits, you know, whatever it is, and that mist that's there and then it's gone. The word picture that he's trying to have us here is to realize that our life is short even though we think that maybe we're young, that maybe death is, is, is so far down the road that I have, I got, I got time. I got time. I can kind of keep living my life. I can keep wiling out and partying and doing my thing because you know what? I don't got to think about death. I don't think about, got to think about the things of God until I get older. Maybe when I have a family. Well, how many people in our own city this summer didn't make it to their 18th birthday? Life is a mist, a vapor. Remember, even though we started out, the Army skydiving team, the sergeant who lost his life at an air show of all things. Well, verse 15 goes on to the godly saying, the right way of viewing our lives or thinking about our lives. It says this, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. And so he gives us the correct saying, if the Lord wills. And notice it's it's an if. It's not a guarantee from our perspective, right? We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We know that. But it's an if. If God wants this, or if it is his plans, if it is his will, it goes back to him being in control. God's in control, not us. 
If God's in control of the whole universe and over all the details of our lives, then we are not. If God wants us to live to tomorrow, we will see tomorrow. If he doesn't, we will not see tomorrow. If he wants us to live until 95, he will let us see 95. He is in control. This is probably where we get the phrase, Lord willing, right? We walk around and say, I'm going to do this and this and this. Lord willing, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. Lord willing. And that's a good phrase. No, and I think I was, I was studying and maybe one commentator um, talked about this, but we don't have to say that all the time. But that's a good perspective for us to have. Lord willing. Yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. Lord willing. Or I'll go to my job tomorrow and I'll be there. Lord willing. And this can be scary, humanly speaking, to realize that we are not in control, to realize that we are limited, that we are finite, that we have weaknesses. We're not Superman or or Batman or whatever it is. We need God. We need to trust him. We need to follow him and to realize that he's got this. We're following the one who has got all things in his hand. He works all things out to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1 says. He's got this. We've got to believe that even in the midst of the struggles, the deepest struggles of our lives. Believe that God has got this. He's got it under control. Verse 16 and 17 is kind of like a final warning and rebuke that James gives us. He kind of goes back to the negative. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. You know, you're reading James sometimes and you're realizing, man, James, you're just not letting up. You're just keep going, right? And some of us more than others like that. We like kind of someone getting in our face and telling us what's going on. Other ones are, please, please stop. Please stop, get to the good news like Pastor Santa was saying. But you know what? Sometimes we need tough love. Sometimes our family members and our friends need tough love, need someone to get it in their face and to say, look, this is what's going on. This is the truth about your situation, your circumstances, your choices. If you keep doing this, this is what's going to happen one day. It is the loving thing to do, to get involved in other people's lives and to help them to follow God. Sometimes we need that tough love. We need to be called out. We need to be called to the mat, as it were, and shown God's love. The problem, James says, for the believers that he is writing to, but also for us, is that they were living their lives according to the first saying and not the second saying. They were saying, being the boastful ones, saying, you know what, I'm going to go do this and that and that, and it's just going to happen. I don't care about what God's doing. I'm in control. Versus if the Lord wills or Lord willing. And they were bragging about it. And they were saying, look, look at me. I don't need God. Who is God? I'm God. Or I'm the king. I'm in control. Bragging about it. And James says that is utterly wrong and evil. And he closes with this warning that we just read. And, uh, and I love how two of the commentators, they paraphrase this. Um, verse 17, they say, one of them says this, you have been fully warned. And another one puts it this way. It is like saying, now that I have pointed the matter out to you, you have no excuse. Knowing what should be done obligates a person to do it. 
Knowing what should be done obligates a person to do it. If I know the right thing to do and don't do it, James is clear. He says it's sin. And it almost seems like a no-brainer, but we need that reminder. We have been reminded, some of us from our earliest of days, what God is like, what he wants from our lives. We've been taught God's word, and we know what is right, and yet fail to do it. And James says that's clearly sin. You know, that voice in the back of your head that says, ah, you probably shouldn't do this. It's probably not going to be honoring to God, or this is probably not going to be very, you know, uplifting to, to your spouse or your kids. Knowing what is right and failing to do it is sin. Here's a good question to think about. Which saying matches up to the attitude about your life, or sorry, which saying matches up to your attitude about your plans for your life? Which saying, the first one or the second one, is your life kind of uh, living under? Is it the first or is it the second? And if you need help answering that, I think you maybe could ask somebody. Ask someone who knows you pretty well and say, look, am I living under God and his plans for my life, under his control, or am I saying, forget God, I'm going my own way? And sometimes that's hard to ask a friend. That's hard to ask a family member, but they know you the best a lot of times. And they know, they watch your life. Because as they watch your life, they will see and they will know what you follow. If you follow God and his ways or if you follow the opposite. Another question for you guys to think about and me today. Do you both plan responsibly as a good steward and hold on to those plans loosely before God who knows and plans and carries out his will. So it's not wrong to be a planner. It's not wrong to have an organized way of thinking or or to to sit down and have your to-do list. It's not wrong. God's sovereignty, it doesn't negate or make useless human responsibility to do things. We still have to do things. We know that in the scriptures that it's hard sometimes to understand those two things wrestling back and forth. If God is sovereign, then what does it matter what I do? Well, no, the scriptures don't give us that option. God is sovereign and I am responsible. I need to do things. God is sovereign over my life, over the plans of my life. He has a plan for providing for our food and our clothing and our housing for my family, but I still have to wake up and put my clothes on and go to work. I still have to go to work and make a living so that my family can eat, so that my family can have a house to to live in. And that's that, that wrestle in which God's sovereignty and man's responsibility meet in this perfect union. God is sovereign, and yet we still can plan. We still need to plan and be faithful in that. Um, I think one of the things that would be helpful is to talk about how to be planners, but also balance what James is talking about in this passage. And uh, one of the pastors that I was looking at, he says, here are three ways to be a planner, but also be humble about it in a way that honors God. And he says this, first, planners dedicate their plans to God. So the first thing that we do is say, you know what, God, I made some plans. I think they're good plans. Maybe it's a plan for my family or a plan for me personally. You know, I made some good plans according to your word, what I thought it would be. But here they are. You take them. They're yours. I'm dedicating them to you. If you want to move things around, if you want to twist them and shake them and put this here and that there, okay, great. It's your plan altogether. 
I'm dedicating it to you. I'm surrendering it to you. And second is this. Second, planners confess they need God's favor. They confess they need God's favor. They need God to come and work, to come and move if these plans are going to be brought to completion. That's when we come here saying, God, we need you, right? We want to go back out and live for you. We want to go back out and honor you in our jobs, in our families, in our parenting. But we need you. We confess that we need you. We need your favor. We need your help. That's the second thing. And then third, planners confess that whatever they achieve is through the gifts and favor of God. Look, so at the end of the day, when something good happens, when God does pull through, when there is a testimony of praise that we can share with each other, like we did today, we can give God all the credit and all the glory because he's the one that did it. Yes, he used us in those plans. He used us in the way that he made us and the gifts that he gave us. But ultimately, it is his gift, his good gift that came down from above in which we can say, praise God, praise God. So it's not wrong to plan. Just make sure those plans are humble plans in a way that honor God, in a way that say, you know what, God, these are your plans. And if anything good happens, it's because of you, James would say. I think God's been really good to us as we've been traveling through the book of James. Sometimes it's a hard book for us to go through. Sometimes it's like a mother sitting down with her son and saying, look, I know these are hard words, but you need to hear them. And that mother who so loves her son to say, I want to give you the truth. I want to tell you what's best for your life. I believe that God is doing that through the book of James for us. He's given us some tough love sometimes. And yet that is what we need. And today we looked at how true Christians and the true Christian faith is shown by our love for one another, by how we speak to each other, or maybe how we don't speak. And the way that we view our lives. We know that our lives are short. They are here one minute and gone the next. Life is too short to waste it by speaking evil against one another or by boasting or bragging about what we have no business boasting or bragging about. It's too short to do that. I was reminded of one of my favorite quotes um, as I was closing this um, study of this uh, passage. I read it in college for the first time. It's gripped my life ever since, and I want to share it with you guys. It says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We've got one shot at this life. One shot. We don't get a retry. We don't get a restart. We don't get a reboot. We don't respawn somewhere like in a video game. One chance. And you know what? I want to offer it, uh, just close with a word of encouragement. If you are convicted by this passage like I was, maybe convicted of certain experience as far as a way that you talk to somebody, like I shared with you, or maybe it's a way in which you boasted about things that were to come and you were forgetting God and his plans and his sovereignty. Maybe you're convicted about that. You're feeling heavy in your heart. Well, what I want to encourage you to do is to go to Jesus. Go to him this morning that you may find and receive his great grace, 
and his great favor. Remember, as we studied James 4.6 from Pastor Santo's last sermon, it talks about us having to humble ourselves before the Lord and that he will lift us up and that he will give us great grace. And that is the gospel here. That is the good news for us. Those who are heavy hearted because we have sinned. Even though we're believers, we mess up in our speech and we mess up in our plans for tomorrow. And yet there is still hope. There is still God's love shown toward us. There is still his grace for us. And so I'm encouraging you, don't go away downtrodden. Don't go away beating yourself up. It's not going to help. Go to Jesus. Experience his forgiveness. Repent of your sins and ask for help to follow him more wholeheartedly in these things that you may know his great grace. Amen? Amen. All right, let me close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we know that sometimes it's a very um, tough word. And uh, tough love is, is something that is uncomfortable a lot of times. It's not something that we just wake up and be like, all right, tell me the bad news. Or tell me, you know, something that I'm doing wrong. But we need it sometimes. And God, you really do love us. God, you loved us way before we ever loved you. And you love us so much that you will not let us continue in these sin patterns that will just destroy our lives and the other lives of those around us. You come after us and you expose our sin before you and you point us back to Jesus and to say, go and find forgiveness and grace and mercy and help in Jesus' name. And that's what we want to find, Jesus. We want to find you and meet you this morning and be renewed from the inside out, God, to go and to live for you by your grace and for your glory. We thank you for this and pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This Sunday's sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday sermon.